This episode of the Consulting Pipeline podcast is brought to you by me, Philip Morgan. In the last episode, we were talking about lead generation, among other things. We are talking about lead generation. I have compiled and profiled and categorized for you 46 lead generation techniques and put them on a website or a sort of microsite, if you will, where you can go sort those lead generations techniques based on their ability to generate trust quickly. And I believe that that's the core challenge in lead generation is providing opportunities for someone to move from never heard of you to, wow, this person is the solution for our problems and we trust them and are ready to hire them. Of course, that cannot happen uh, overnight. I mean, I guess it could, but in most cases it doesn't. So as you're generating leads, I think you're interested in knowing what lead generation techniques are going to be quickest and most efficacious at building trust with prospects. So if you go to trustvelocity.com, you'll see this table I've put together. You can sort the table based on various characteristics. There's a little video there to explain how it works. And I would encourage you to check it out because generating your own leads and being able to do that consistently is, I think, one of the core differentiators between freelancers who are just kind of barely making it and those who are doing much, much better. So check out TrustVelocity.com. Before we get into today's episode, I think I have a, a discovery I want to share with you. I think I have discovered the... Uh, what to call this, the anti-podcasting meal. Like if you were going to put into your mouth and body some foods that are exactly the wrong foods to eat right before you hop on a podcast, I think I've discovered what that is. And it is a combination of corn on the cob and almonds. At least for me, almonds kind of have some magical power to get in the back of my throat and make me cough at exactly the wrong time. And if you've ever had corn on the cob, you know exactly what that does to your teeth. So um, there you go, the anti-podcasting meal. And I think um, I think that's, uh, maybe I should patent that. <clears throat> anyway, let me get into uh, today's topic. It's a question from Mr. S in New Zealand. And um, Mr. S and I have actually spoken about this. So he's, he was following up via email with a follow-up question. And once again, it's a question that's not just specific just to his situation. It's broadly applicable, broadly useful to others who are thinking about focusing on a market vertical. One of the things that comes up, which is somewhere between a, uh, a fear that never materializes into anything real, it's somewhere between that and a potential actual concern that could materialize. The concern is, okay, if I'm focused on companies, let's say I'm going to pick the example uh, of the finance world. That's, I think, one of the more competitive market verticals out there. It's certainly not the most competitive, um, but it's, it's pretty competitive, right? And if you decide to focus on that market vertical, how will you deal with the question that you may get from company A where they're saying, hey, uh, we're interested in working with you, but we're kind of concerned because you appear to be focused only on companies like us 
and we would not want to uh, find out that you had worked for us and then shared with one of our competitors some information you learned from working with us and that would somehow disad you know disadvantage us because it's sort of like you were spying on us and talking to our competitor about what we're up to and that's uh, Mr. S's core question. Uh, his is actually even a little more interesting than that. That's the sort of standard question. His situation is even a little more interesting. So I'm going to leave um, out a few details because I want to respect his um, privacy here. But what he's asking is that he's been working for a company within a market vertical. He has built or is in the process of building for them a piece of uh, software that has to do with managing orders. And the software is useful enough to that type of company that that software could be sold to other companies, perhaps a, a customized version thereof, uh, almost certainly a customized version thereof, but the same basic software. So it's not exactly like a SaaS uh, software as a service situation where it is the exact software, and the software is not really customized individually per customer. It's more of a situation of customer A hired Mr. S to build this piece of software, and now customer B could be sold that software, but it could be developed at a much lower cost because Mr. S could reuse, I'm going to arbitrarily say, let's say 80% of what was built for customer A and that can be sold to customer B. And uh, because the value does isn't dramatically lower for customer B. <laughs> see, there's my dog getting excited whenever I say the word value. No, I'm kidding. He's actually deaf, but he sometimes randomly barks at stuff. Anyway, the value is not different for the second <laughs> customer. It's not certainly not dramatically lower. And so uh, Mr. S is in a situation where the profit on that second sale even though it does involve some perhaps some customization work to make it a good fit for for you know client B, the profit is much higher, and so that is absolutely the kind of situation that I am wanting more and more people to be able to be in, is where they have things that are assets that are based on intellectual property and can be sold and can be they can you can get paid to build them the first time. But then when you sell them subsequent times, the profit margin is dramatically higher. That's such a sweet, sweet situation to be in. But um, customer A in this situation, uh, and again, I'm not reading uh, Mr. S's email verbatim, but the essence of what he's saying is customer A wanted that software developed to create a competitive advantage <laughs> or some sort of differentiation between them and their competition, which includes customer B. So how do you navigate that situation? And uh, I'm going to be completely honest. I don't know, except I know how you don't do it. You don't do it. And I'm not, uh, Mr. S, I am not at all saying that you would ever do this. But it would be tempting to just uh, do it on the sly, to do it without having a discussion with, um, with customer A. And that's something I would absolutely avoid. So what I would do is approach customer A and, uh, you know, if this is your idea to take the software and um, reuse it, you're certainly going to have to 
you know, make sure contractually there's not anything that encumbers the intellectual property of what you developed. And so if you kind of found yourself in this situation and you're like, holy cow, we built this software, basically uh, in the United States it would be called work for hire where, you know, the ownership of the intellectual property is assigned immediately. I mean, contractually, most contracts, I believe, work this way. The ownership of the IP, it it doesn't, like, reside with you, and then it's assigned later. Although sometimes uh, you'll see contracts where people make the payment, the the transfer of IP contingent on payment. But a lot of times it just, like, immediately that IP is owned. As soon as it comes out of your your keyboard or your, uh, you know, however it's produced, it's owned by the client who's paying you to, to build it. So if that's the case, um, then, you know, you've got a contract that might possibly be renegotiated, but, uh, most certainly as is would preclude you, um, transferring this IP, uh, in any way to any other client. So in that situation, I would say, okay, uh, that opportunity wasn't really available. Um, you, you know, you missed it because you, you didn't know it was coming, and that's fine. So next time, you know, see what you can do to um, to sign a different type of contract or, or have a different agreement. And, uh, you know, I could see if during the sales conversation, you, the uh, the expert, were sort of, throwing in a lot of caveats that the client is not has not heard before like um that's that's just one of those delicate situations where the tone of how you say it is is really everything the the tone of it is is 80 percent of it and you know what you're actually saying is the other 20 percent so um that that seems like one potential scenario the other potential scenario is there is no a contractual encumbrance and it's kind of a blank sheet negotiation where you could approach the client and say look um, you know we we feel like this is an opportunity and the goal of that negotiation is going to be able is going to be to discover how you taking advantage of the opportunity to uh, license or reuse this code is beneficial to your client and that's going to require seeing things from their perspective. Uh, and maybe from their perspective, it would be beneficial for you to further entrench yourself in this vertical and become a more uh, profitable, uh, reliable um, company for them to work with. So maybe there is something in it for, your, for client A in this situation. Uh, I, I can't, um, I, I can't really th- imagine any other way of conceiving of this is really going to lead to a great outcome. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that, and and by the way, I'm I'm sort of tying this to the larger argument, which is that when you do focus on a market vertical, you build up expertise that comes from you seeing the same situation over and over again, or similar enough situations over and over again that you can start to develop insight and expertise that produces outsized amounts of value. So really you can't do that without, you know, without that consistent focus. 
Now, getting back, so that's, that's, those are some thoughts, which I hope are helpful on the specific question of like, okay, we, we created this software, this intellectual property that would have value to other clients. What do we do with that? It's got to be, I mean, basically it has to be part of a conversation with client A with good faith and, you know, quite a bit of transparency. Back to the general question, though, and this is, you know, again, in some cases, just a baseless fear, and, and in other cases, it's a legitimate concern. What if I focus on an industry that's very competitive, and all of a sudden, my ability to work with enough clients is restricted by the competitive nature of the industry? So if I get into a vertical where client A says, no way are you working with anybody else. If you work with us, you got to be exclusive. And I believe that there may be market verticals out there like that, and I would just steer clear of them. How do you know? You ask. <laughs> you talk to people in the market vertical. So if you're in the situation of the generalist who's pondering this idea of specializing, then that's the approach. You just want to consider that as a risk factor in, in making this decision. <laughs> that's right, Malcolm. So... Um, just find out. It's part of your due diligence um, as as you're moving from a generalist to a specialist. It's just part of thinking through all, all the potential outcomes and consequences of that, most of which are good. But again, this can in some cases, in some market verticals, be a legitimate concern. So there you go, uh, Mr. S. I hope that helps. I uh, hope that helps other folks who are concerned about what it would be like to uh, specialize and narrow down in this way. I was pretty sure my anti-podcasting meal was going to make this episode suffer, but that's my dog instead. If you've got questions and would like my take on them, uh, dial in to the phone number 707-204-0717. Record your question. I will play it on air and answer it. Hope to hear from you.